Today we're going to look at the conclusion of the second missionary journey. Uh, Paul was, has traveled over 2,500 miles in this journey. Uh, we see from our map how far he has gone. It's taken him a long time. He's covered Israel, Syria, uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and into Greece, and then back down to Jerusalem, we'll see today. He's walked close to 100 or 1,200 miles on foot. That's crazy, just to think about that. 1,200 miles. He often worked as a tent maker to support himself. He's been beaten. He's been chased out of two cities. Then he was mocked by the philosophers of Athens. Then last week we saw the Lord appeared to give Paul a little bit of a rest, a break. The Lord promised Paul protection in Corinth. And the Lord promised fruitful labor there in Corinth. The Lord said that there were many of his own in this city. We saw this last week. And the, the timing of this, all these events are approximately 51 AD. This is, way, this is before Nero, and it's a time of peace, actually, for the church. Paul had been on the road for close to two years. The Jews were on the run from the emperor in Rome, as we saw last week. But as a whole, we're going to see that this is going to start a time of peace for Paul. Our Lord gives Paul an extra measure of grace in Corinth. It was Paul needed it. He needed a break. I find it interesting that the church he spent the most time with, however, had the most fruit at the beginning, becomes the biggest difficulty for him later on in his ministry. As you read through 1 and 2 Corinthians, it's obvious that Paul struggled with the church, this church that he had established. A fruitful church at the beginning, but later causes Paul a ton of grief. They allowed various immoralities into their church. The church didn't honor the Lord during the Lord's Supper. There was backbiting and disunity, and they had factions and cliques within their church. The church questioned even the Apostle Paul's authority. It was, to say the least, a real mess. Yet it was here in Corinth that Paul had the most fruit in his second missionary journey. What Corinth shows us is ministry is messy. Sheep don't always obey their shepherd as they should. We need to all take this reality to heart. Being taught the word and being steeped in biblical doctrine means nothing if we don't live obedient lives to our Lord. Today we see Paul's ministry in Corinth received an enormous amount of grace. Yet we also must remember a strong start is only a call to double down in our efforts to pursue the king. If you have a lot, what does that require? A lot. You need to pursue Christ more than anything, ladies and gentlemen. We have a church that every Sunday morning we have Sunday school where these guys are getting up there doing expositions of passages, fundamentals of the faith. We're getting taught in every direction all the time, aren't we? We have Greek, Greek classes on Saturday morning, two of them. Amazing for this little church. We're getting tons and tons of information. All that means is we have more accountability. We have more accountability. It's time for us to step up, ladies and gentlemen, and pursue God in holiness, unity, 
and in love. We can't be like this church in Corinth that was taught by the Apostle Paul for a year and a half, but then later is his biggest thorn in the flesh, figuratively speaking. We all must pursue holiness and unity and love. Ultimately, what we see today is, is the Lord is building His church in ways we don't always see at first glance. The Lord is working even when we don't see Him or have a direct revelation of Him. This is good news. No matter how much we bumble and stumble along, God's going to build His church. He can have a church like Corinth, where it's a bunch of people that have came out of wickedness, but still fall and stumble and bumble, but God will build His church. Praise God. It doesn't need us. He, by His grace, uses us. I'm so thankful. So thankful. This is a call to trust Him because He's working even when we don't realize it. Last week we saw that the sovereign Lord's progress is seen in verses 1 to 4. The Lord continued to move Paul around Europe. The Lord was establishing His church. He brought Aquila and Priscilla in to help Paul, and Paul faithfully proclaimed the word in the synagogue in Corinth. Then we saw the Lord's sovereign provision in verses 5 to 11. The Lord gave Paul a sweet reunion with his fellow ministers and missionaries, Silas and Timothy. Then the Lord graciously provided a sure resolve in the Apostle Paul to proclaim the truth, despite the majority of the Jews that were rejecting his message. Next we saw the Lord gave, the Lord Jesus gave graciously a strategic harvest. Remember Titius, who lived next to the synagogue, embraced Christ. Next, the leader of the synagogue himself embraced Christ and was baptized in his family. Then God gave Paul one of the sweetest of his gifts. Look down in your Bibles, you see in verse Nine, this divine revelation to Paul. These sweet words, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. This must have started a time of great comfort and joy for the Apostle Paul. Some commentators say, that the Apostle Paul made a vow at this time to not cut his hair. We'll see that in a little bit. As long as he was in Corinth. Because as soon as he leaves, it appears he cuts his hair. And you've got the, uh, that vow that's mentioned. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Maybe the vow was associated with the promise made from the Lord. I don't, I'm not positive. We know he cut his hair as soon as he left, but I, I'm not sure why. What we do know is this. God said, in effect, to Paul, Be still and know that I am God. Rest, Paul. Enjoy a time of fruitful ministry. Everybody longs for those moments, don't we? I've been enjoying those as I've been your pastor for many, many years, and I'm so thankful for that. Yet, as we saw at the end last week, a trial arrived not too long after this promise. I want to start with this third display of God's sovereignty and His sovereign grace. And third, the Lord's sovereign protection. I want to develop this a little better because it's an interesting passage. And the more I've thought on it, it's something that we need to make sure we take heed to. Notice in verse 12 it states, But while Galileo, 
was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. What we see here is the protection unfolds in these steps, and they, it unfolds, God's protection unfolds in ways that you don't really see God specifically. God is not specifically mentioned at all in this passage from 12 to 17. But he's everywhere to be found in this passage. He's all through this passage. But when you first look at the passage, you say, where's God? Matter of fact, I guarantee you that's what Paul was thinking when the trial started to unfold. I wonder, I told you this last week, what was going through the mind of the Apostle Paul as he was dragged before this governor at the judgment seat? Was he repeating the promises that God had made to him? Was he saying them back to him? You know, you're with me, and there's a great harvest. You don't have to worry about anybody hurting you. I wonder if he was saying it back to the Lord. Or was he so confident that as he was being dragged in, he was thinking to himself, this is going to be fun. These guys are going to get embarrassed. Do you think he was thinking that? We don't know what he was really thinking, right? We're not told exactly what he was thinking. What we are shown is God was working behind the scenes. God was sovereignly working even in these events. He was providentially working to fulfill his promises. And the way he was working is not how you would have picked, not how I would have picked. I would have picked more of the slaying mentality. You know, pull out the sword and say, hey, be quiet, Jews. Or the gun, as we've talked about. That would have been easier, right? But no, God had a way. And he was going to do it in a way that you just didn't expect. Look what happens. Similar to the way the Old Testament passages unfold. Some of them are beautiful stories. Don't you love the book of Esther? Oh, it's one of the sweetest stories. As you watch it unfold, you... It brings you to this climax that everything's falling apart. The Jews are all going to die. Haman's going to get hung. And the gallows of Haman, right? Or Mordecai, rather, is going to be hung by Haman's gallow, right? We look at that story, and as it unfolds, you're, you're brought to the edge of your seat thinking, they're going to die. They're going to die. They're all going to die. And then all in a big twist of God's providence at the last minute, everything is turned upside down. And the evil one's plots are actually brought to bear on himself and the trap falls right in on himself. This is how God's providence often works. Just like in Joseph's case. His brothers mistreat him. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, it gets him thrown in jail. What happens? He's in jail, he interprets a dream, and the guys forget about him. <laughs> All to then bring brought up and put into second position under Pharaoh to then be able to deliver the, the, his brothers out of famine in the land. God is good, isn't he? This is how God works. It's his providence on display. Why is this so important? Because this is God's MO, and this is exactly how God was going to unfold this for Paul. 
He was going to provide for protection, but he was going to provide it in a way that you just wouldn't see it first. You wouldn't think it. Folks, we need to understand that this is the same God that works today, and he works in our lives the same way. Do you understand he's about his children? He uses evil to destroy itself. That's wonderful news. We see here the Jews led by a new leader of the synagogue. Remember, the other one got saved. Thinks, let's take Paul down now. Let's use this governor to do it. So they bring Paul out to the judgment seat to face this governor. They accuse Paul of persuading men to worship God contrary to the law. And Galileo was a very well-known Roman official. He would be as well-known as one of our Supreme Court justices of today. When he made a decision, it would become a precedent for much of the Roman Empire. So they're thinking, hey, we could get a precedent against all those Christians. They're thinking evil, right? They're thinking Let's get this guy involved because if this guy has Paul beat, then that means anywhere Paul goes, he will be beat. They want a precedent set, right? It's a beautiful trap. It's a trap that's amazing because as evil works to have Paul slip into it, what then turns around happens, Paul's given freedom to go anywhere. And through this guy's judgment, God actually rescues him more and gives him relief. He doesn't have to look over his shoulder. What an amazing God this is. We know the Jews at that time were already hot in hot water with the Romans. Remember, the emperor had kicked out Priscilla and Aquila and all the Jews in the area in Rome. So as bold as the Jews were, they were also very risky, almost foolish to make a spectacle of this matter. But isn't this the way evil works? Think about what evil does. It makes you ignorant. Sin makes you ignorant. You do dumb things. This is what they did. They went before the governor when the other Jews had just been kicked out of Rome. What are you doing? What's the wisest political thing to be doing at this time? Lay low. Get out of the way. Be quiet. Instead, what do they do? They bring Paul right up to the front in the Bema seat, which means that everybody's watching. Everybody in the city, they didn't have TV. What did the people do to know what was going on in the culture and of the day? They went down and watched the judgment seat rulings. Everybody in the city would come out and see. Okay, let's see what's going on. And as this governor stepped up to rule... Their foolishness ended up being their demise. Is God good or what? We can learn some very valuable lessons from these events, friends. I think sometimes we need to sit back and just let our enemies or our opposition hurt themselves. Hear me, folks. You don't need to win the battles. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When somebody opposes the gospel, sometimes the best thing we can do is to do this. You ready? Be still and know that he is God. 
trust God. That's what we see in this story. Often we don't need to defend ourselves at all. We just need to sit back and wait for them to eliminate themselves. I think often we think that we are God's sword. We think that we're the sword. We're the ones. Do you understand? God is so intelligent and wise that he can actually have the enemy kill itself. Because that's what sin does. Sin blinds you and then you step on yourself. There's a great warning for us in this too, right? We don't need to defend ourselves. We need to trust the Lord. Get that point. This is the point. This passage says, don't try to fix everything. Don't try to be the defender of yourself. Trust God. He is king and he will work. Notice next, the opposition is contested. The opposition is contested in verses 14 to 16. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, I would love to have known what he was thinking. Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. Can you hear his sarcasm here? Like, hey, 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 I got to deal with these Jews. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourself. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. Here we see Paul doesn't even get a chance to speak on his behalf before the most unlikely of events happen. The Roman governor, he was not going to entertain the Jews' charges. This was a total waste of time to him. I don't even think he really cared for them. I get this because when they start to beat on their leader afterwards, he doesn't intervene. In a sense, this judge says, look, this issue shouldn't even be before me. I'm not going to listen to your foolish religious arguments. This guy is not hurting anyone. Let this guy Paul go. I'm done with you Jews. If it was an issue of violence, it'd be one thing. But it's not, and I'm tired of you. I don't care one bit about this discussion. Get out of my face, for lack of a better term. That's what he says. Now, if you think about this, there is a huge ironic twist in this whole thing. The man, the governor, should care about what they're talking about, shouldn't he? Should he care? Oh, yeah, his soul depends on it. If he didn't embrace the Messiah that Paul was proclaiming, where was he going to end up? Hell for eternity. But he didn't care. He didn't care what Paul thought, and he didn't care what the Jews thought. He thought, get your argument out of here. I don't want to bother with you. But his sinful condition actually caused him to totally ignore the issue. So what's God doing? He's allowing another sinner's heart to actually protect his man and the way. His ignorance ended up protecting Paul from their further persecution. 
Do you understand, folks? This is just glorious stuff. Do you see what I'm talking about? That you, when we're looking at it, now apply this to your own life. We're often looking and we think, oh, this guy at work, he's out to get me. He's stabbing me in the back. He's always talking bad about me and he's got all these things going bad against me. And we think, man, I got to go defend myself to the boss. I got to go talk to the boss and get things so it's real clear because obviously he's lying about me. Right? And that's what we're thinking. We're thinking, oh, I got to fix this. Right? When in fact, what God is doing is letting that God be who he is and show the bosses that what? You're a bunch of, you're a batch of, you're backbiting. You don't care about him. You don't care about this company. You care about one person, yourself. Do you understand that's what happens often in work? That's what happens in your world. People are after you. They hate you. And as they express their hatred, they try to disguise their sin. But what have they done? What happens? They're exposed. And what's God do? He just lets the consequences come about. This is God. This is the way his providence works. Stop. We've got to stop trying to defend ourselves all the time. Sometimes we just need to rest and realize God can take care of all these events. we just got to trust him. He's in control of everyone, even the sinners. And what's amazing is this set up for a precedent for other judges in the area who dealt with disagreements between Christians and Jews for the next 10 years or so. What do we have? This pagan governor ignores the issues, thus sealing his own condemnation, by the way. But at the same time, his dismissal of the charges led to further deliverance for Paul and the missionaries all around the area. And as we see, it leads to further demise of the Jews who had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. We're going to see this the rest of the way through the book of Acts. You know what we're going to see? We're going to see God uses pagan people to protect Paul. We're going to see this over and over and over and over again. Why? Because God's in control. God's working. This, again, is so like God. I can't overemphasize this enough for us. We must trust Him. He knows what He's doing. The enemy often sets traps and snares for us. But as we trust and obey the Master, the enemy often finds themselves trapped in their own snares. After the Roman official brushes off the Jewish complaint, next we see... The opposition implodes. Notice in verse 17 it states, And they all took hold of Sosthenes. Sosthenes. I've said it 14 times. Still never comes out the way you want it to say. Say it out loud. Rehearse it to my wife. And then Sosthenes. <laughs> the Lord definitely wants me to be humble. It's good stuff. Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galileo, 
And again, I could argue on how you pronounce this one. How did you say it, Mark? Gallio. I said it that way. I know I did. Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. So what did God do here? First, he saved the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, in verse 8. Right? Remember? But then his replacement, Sosthenes, is shamefully beaten in public at the judgment seat. This is like being beaten on TV today. Again, the judgment seat is where all people come out to see what's happening in the city. And on this day, the Jewish leader was publicly shamed. Now, who beat him is not perfectly clear from the thing. All we're given is a pronoun. They took him and beat him. But I believe it's the Jews themselves that beat their leader. Now, let me tell you why. If you look at 14 through 16, the only plural subject was the Jews. And in 16, it appears the last group in Luke's mind were the Jews. So when in 17 he references they, it must be the Jews themselves. So now just think about what's happened. They've lost their leader. He became a believer in Christ, right? So they put their faith in this next guy, Sosthenes, right? And this guy leads them to go right before the governor in the area with, out in front of everybody and is shamefully told to get out of my face, right? What next happens is the Jews are done with this guy too. Let's have him. What do they do? They beat him publicly. Why? Because the leader brought shame on them. This is so much how humanity is. And this is just like the opposition, by the way. When it comes down to it, they really are only concerned with one thing, themselves. And so if they are shamed, they will then turn on their leader in a second. You will see this. We see this in our country all the time, don't we? We turn on our leaders on a dime when we are shamed by something they did. Right? Take them out. This is exactly what happens. This is so typical of human nature. Humans are out for ourselves. If we think that there's a chance they can run someone down, they'll jump on it. But if, they, if that leads them into a trap, they'll turn on their leader on a dime. It's all about saving face. Mark that down. That's what the world's all about. Do you understand? The world's all about saving face. We can't be that way, by the way. We need to let the Lord be our sovereign. If he wants us to be shamed, what do we do? We accept it. And we're not ashamed of the gospel anyway. Even though there's shame, right? So what we see here is God is in his providence fulfills his promises to Paul. He is rescued and protected. And at the same Paul, time, Paul is given a sense of security that allows him or allows for him to stay on in Corinth unhindered in proclaiming the gospel. Again, we can all learn from these events. First, we should learn what not to do. Well, here's what you don't do. We must never try to manipulate people in power for our evil desires. That's what the Jews were trying to do here, right? They were trying to manipulate this governor to try to get their way. And they did it just like, remember, Pilate? was manipulated. This is what the evil world tries to do. 
Be careful of manipulating people in order to get them to do what you want them to do because guess what will happen? You'll spring a trap on yourself. You understand? Be careful. Second, we must trust to learn to trust in all circumstances, even in tense moments. See, the Lord knows who He is doing or what He's doing, and He has our best interest at heart. He wants to glorify Himself by using us. No, this doesn't mean we will always be rescued from hardship, but it does mean God has our back. We can trust Him. Isn't that good news? We know God's always going to be watching and always has our best interest at heart. You must preach that to your heart all the time. Okay? Counsel your soul that way. So we see here the Lord's sovereign protection came as an opposition arose. Second, the opposition was contested. And finally, we saw the opposition imploded. Once again, God's sovereign grace is on display. Fourth, I want you to notice the next section, the Lord's sovereign guidance. This is the conclusion of the second missionary journey. Let's read again, verses 18 to 22. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sincrea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if, the Lord, if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. Most likely this is in Jerusalem and then went down to Antioch. Beloved, this passage is so intriguing to me. It's, it's almost baffling. Look at it for a second. We see the final events of the second missionary journey. This time period most likely covers months and months and months of travel and ministry, and it does it all in five, day, five verses. It's, it's, it's very strange to me how little details Luke gives. I confess, I have tons of questions from this passage and no answers. All I know is, is that I have tons of questions and I'm not going to find out until I get to heaven. It's, it's, it's as if, look at what he's done. He's basically given, this is the worst thing you can do if you're preaching a sermon. Give the outline points and then give no details. He gave the skeleton outline of all the events and then that's it. End of story. He doesn't fill in any of the details, but you're talking maybe up to six months of travel. Six months of events. And the first time he ever went to the church in Ephesus. First time he's ever been there. And it's only a short little time. Think of all these questions. These are the ones that came to my mind. What happened in Corinth after the synagogue leader was beaten? Give me some details. I mean, we did this Bible study here. These people came to faith. It was great. Give me, tell me about Corinth. 
Tell me about the people that came to believe. Second, what made Paul leave Corinth after a year and a half? I mean, he had been told by the Lord, what? You're safe here. Why not stay? Why did he leave? Why did he, okay, I think I'm going to go. Then you get this comical verse in the middle of it that I really, honestly, have absolutely no idea what it's talking about. It's that one that says, and then he cut his hair because he had made a vow. What? Does that mean I should make vows and let my hair grow out at times? Is this something that we should all practice? Okay, everybody, for the next month and a half, we're not cutting our hair. We're going to let it grow because we're making a vow to the Lord. It tells us nothing, does it? Nothing about it. It just says it happened. All the girls in the room said, okay, I can handle that. All the guys in the room said, no, I'm not doing that. Why after Paul, these are just a few of the, I, I mean, there's tons of questions. Why after Paul had wanted to go to Asia in Acts 16, remember he wanted to go there and God stopped him? He goes all the way around, all the way around, and he gets back to Asia in Ephesus, right? That's in, in Asia. Why when he gets there, he proclaims the word and the Jews appear to say, give me more, and he says, nope, can't do that, got to go. He would fail all church growth programs. He's out. You've got an audience and they want to hear. And he says, nope, I'm out of here. I, if God wants me to come back, I'll come back. But until now, I'm, until then, I'm out of here. How did Paul know the Lord didn't want him to stay in Ephesus? Which is really strange because before we get to the end of 18... He's already going back to Ephesus. It's very strange. This group of Jewish believers appear to be some of the most accepting, yet Paul leaves quickly. Why? He's even asked to stay, and Paul says, Nope, got to go. Can't consent to you. I'm not staying here. Then, when Paul leaves... There is really no details of his ministry in the following areas, in the areas to come, or in, this er in these areas. Before, he is once again on the road for the third missionary trip. Now, let me explain what I mean. Remember when he came back after the first missionary trip? What does Luke tell us? They celebrated. Remember? And then there was this telling everybody. Look at what God's doing with the Gentiles. It's just like this big explosion, lots of narrative, right? Here, he, it appears that he goes to Jerusalem and then leaves Jerusalem and goes to Antioch and stays there for some time. And we get no details, nothing. We have nothing. Why? Are y'all like me at this point? You're going, okay, did Luke just... Get writer's cramp or something? Just give me some more details. I want to know what's going on. There's so many untold stories. What happened in Jerusalem? What happened when he got back to Antioch? Were they excited? What was the, what was the response? And what happened? Notice in verse 23, it says he stayed there for some time, but then left. <laughs> That's it. At this point, y'all are hopefully where I was when I was studying this, going, why? 
What's the point? Why all these details? But no details. Nothing. It's just little bits and pieces. Why? It's almost like Luke gave the skeleton outline and forgot to fill in the details. Okay, you want to know why? Ultimately, it's this. You ready? Because that's all God wanted us to know. Oh, Mike, come on. Is that the best you're going to do? Yeah. Ultimately, that's all he wanted us to know. A bunch of what? <laughs> this is all he wanted me to know. He went to Antioch. He went to, first to Jerusalem. He was in Ephesus for a short while. Then he told him I had to go. That's all he wanted us to know. So many unanswered questions, but it's exactly what we need to know. Because if he wanted us to know more, he would have done what? Recorded it. There's some application here for you. Do you have questions when you're reading the scriptures and sometimes those questions don't get answered? Do you? You have what he wants you to know. Sometimes we need to be careful of filling in the white spaces in our Bible. Sometimes we just need to sit there and go, you know what? This is all God wanted me to know. Maybe, by chance, is this not very parallel to the way our life is? And I think this is a very important point. Listen to me. We don't always understand everything that God's doing. We don't always get it. It doesn't always seem to be very picture-perfect clear. There isn't always a special revelation that tells us exactly what we're supposed to do, where we're supposed to go, and what it's supposed to look like. But one thing we can know for sure, the Lord is building His church. That's what this passage is showing. He's moving Paul where he wants to move him. He's doing with Paul what he wants to do. He's working. He's working in ways that we don't always understand. Sometimes in strange ways, vows to not cut your hair. But God is building his church. This is beautiful, isn't it? Look what's happened. Paul made his way to Asia after all. Ephesus. And we know that he left Aquila and Priscilla there in, in this city. This would be the beginning of an amazing church. One that would end up being one of the, it, one if not the most important church in the early church. I, I would argue that Antioch shifts to Ephesus after the third missionary journey. So in other words, the central location would probably, you could argue, is Ephesus. What happens? This was just a little brief introduction. Paul goes and leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. But something great happened with them. What do you think? The church that was in their house became an exploding place for God's glory. The church in Ephesus started with this brief visit, but then discipleship took place. Later, Paul stays there for an extended time, as we will see on his third missionary journey. And after that, Timothy is there for a long time. And then after that, the apostle John is in Ephesus for an extended period of time. Think about this one little church and the little introduction and the way it started. Again, notice the contrast. Corinth, 
Year and a half, lots of details. Paul's there. Beginning of Ephesus, little details. Very little time with the Apostle Paul initially. Quilla and Priscilla are left there. Paul doesn't even consent to teach them. He leaves, and then five books of the New Testament were written to this church in Ephesus, or while to one of their leaders. Do you understand? First John, First and Second Timothy, Ephesus, Revelation. These books were written and most likely started with these churches. Very interesting. And then Paul later writes 1 and 2 Corinthians, most likely from Ephesus. So this church is loaded with information, but not in Luke's account in Acts. What's it show? God was building this church. God was in control. He moved people around. He moved people into new ministries. He moved people out of ministries. He brought new people into the ministry. Often what he was doing was not even written down or even noticed by those, but God was working. I was reminded of that this week. You know, I would have never dreamed that in two weeks I would have been in Myanmar. You would have told me that a month ago. I would have said, you're nuts. Well, I take that back. I did get one little hint from the guy that asked me to go, but I didn't. I even wrote him an email back saying, no, <laughs> that's not me. I know there's somebody else that can do that. This is how God works. He does things we just don't grasp initially. Folks, please understand. Why is this so important? Why do we need to know this? Why because when you're in your jobs, when you're working with your family, often everything seems to go contrary to the way you think. Isn't that true? Why is my family doing what they're doing? Why does that boss say what he says? Why are they thinking like that? How is this for my good and God's glory? Have you asked that question? Whether it's cancer or whether it's a, somebody dying in your family, all these events, we heard it this week, all these events that are unfolding in our lives, we're going, how is this for my good and your glory? I just don't understand, Lord. How does this fit? We must understand that God is building this church. The Lord is in control. I was so overcome by God's grace this week as I met with a young man who had visited our church a few times. I was hoping he would show today. I don't see him. But God is sovereign. The events are amazing to me. In order for me to sit down and eat lunch with him, there were so many events that just had to work out. Wednesday, I was supposed to go eat lunch with him. When I went to eat lunch with him, just to, I wanted to get together with him and share with him the gospel. He, he called me on the phone, and I, I almost his first words were, I want to get baptized. And I'm like, hello? <laughs> it was great, though. I can't wait until you all meet him if you haven't met him. He's not here, but... Lord willing, he'll be here again soon. I just, I was amazed. 
because one of the things that struck me is Wednesday I, I had canceled my meeting with him. I was supposed to go meet with him and share the gospel. Something came up and I had to cancel. So I moved it to Thursday. When I got there, I went to the wrong place. He was a good 30 minutes away from where I was. He told me a Burger King, and the Burger King I went to was on Florida, and his was way out on Bush and 50th or 30th. I mean, it was a long ways away with traffic. The wild thing was is that he rode his bike to get there, to get to this place. In the process, I called him and said, no, don't move. I'll come to you. When I got there, he wasn't there. And I was like, hey, I called him. Where are you at? He says, my bike broke down. I'm walking. I said, okay, no problem. Where are you at? I'll come pick you. He said, no, I'll be there in a minute. Just hold on. I'm right down the street. So he, his, bright, his bike completely broke. He chained it up to a pole and walked a good another mile to me to get to this place. Sat down, and it was so beautiful. As I began to share the gospel with him, he goes to one of the local high schools. He has been influenced by nobody of real Christian influence. He just started watching sermons online and started reading the Bible and says, I really want to follow God. I want to know him. I said, does anybody else in your school really confess? No. I said, does your parents, I mean, are they really on fire for the Lord? No. I said, well, why are you here? He said, because I really want to follow God. I need to know him a little bit more. And I was like, so much for going and knocking on doors, they come to us. And they walk miles to get there, even when their bikes are broken down. Thankfully, I got to share the gospel with him, and he was really open and wanted to listen, wants to study, wants to learn. But it was intriguing to me. I said, hey, let me give you a ride home, and I threw his bike in the back of the truck and started riding in him. And I went down into, the, into his neighborhood, and it is a pretty tough neighborhood. It's pretty tough for a, I'm just being honest here, white guy with a Chevy truck driving down into the middle of this section is probably, would not be considered wise, and most people would say. Uh, got a couple looks. I'm just being honest. But I loved it. Because what it showed me was this. God is about his people. And he can pluck people out of anywhere at any time and save them. What a glorious God we serve. He builds his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And he doesn't need us, but he by grace uses us. Get on board. Let's go serve the king. He will take us around and do what he wants to do with us. If you're here and you don't know that Christ, the God that came to earth, died on a cross, rose from the dead, and is now ruling and reigning in heaven, today's the day. Repent and believe in him, for he is our hope. He is our Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. Oh, so good. Beyond our comprehension. You use us fallible, weak, 
ignorant sheep to build your church. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you for your sovereign control of all things. Lord, we pray that as we go about our daily lives that we will counsel our souls to trust in you. Counsel our souls to depend upon you. And then, Lord, I pray that you will give us boldness and courage to share the gospel no matter where we are, to proclaim the glorious good news of Christ Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, and return. We love you, Father. We thank you for your word. We pray that you will use us for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.